Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Good morning to each of you. It is great to see you guys here this morning. I hope that you have had a a blessed week. Um, I know that, as always, and it seems perhaps more and more we can say that various circumstances of the week were difficult, whether just personal circumstances in our own lives or things that we see happening around the world or throughout our country. Um, It can be pretty disheartening at times, certainly think of uh, more senseless killings in Atlanta this past week that I know is causing turmoil and and most importantly just grieving for families. Um, But the fact of the matter is we we serve a God who is alive, uh, who is on the throne, who is still at work, who is moving and saving and and bringing about his his plan of salvation and and really that's that's what we will consider as we continue in our study of Matthew here this morning. We're coming to that place. We've we've come as far as chapter 26 in our study of Matthew and and here as we embark upon these final three chapters we come to a portion of scripture that in many respects you could say is kind of holy ground you might say well all of scripture of course is 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 important is 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 alive is is inerrant i mean it's it's the it's all the word of god but yes sometimes we come to these these chapters where what is contained within them is absolutely incredible if you recall at this point jesus's public teaching ministry has come to an end it's done And that really ended as he departed from the temple, having landed blow after blow against the religious leadership and against their hypocrisy. Jesus departed the temple, declaring the so-called holy place to be desolate. In effect, as as the Son of God, as the incarnate God-man stepped away from the temple, he declared that the presence of God is not there. And from there, Jesus heads to the Mount of Olives where, he, where his, his final teaching to his disciples deals with the events of the end times as well as a call to faithful service. We considered that over the last couple of weeks. And now, as we will see here in chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, these things, the, the, the events that have transpired have now come to an end. And we transition now into the final portion of Matthew's gospel. These are the final days of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. But these last few days, to say that they that, that, that these days changed the course of history would be an understatement. To say that, that they are days that serve as the fulfillment of history up to that point would be an understatement. To say that these few days serve as the beginning of the rest of history would also be an understatement. And that is because we cannot begin to even fathom or to articulate the full significance of what happens in these remaining chapters. To be sure, as I seek to teach this content over these next few weeks, I find myself entirely intimidated, as always, by the scripture that is before us. And for good reason. In these next few chapters, we deal with the work of the gospel. 
the actual events that are necessary to bring about salvation, to defeat death, to bring forgiveness to humanity, to birth the church, to to put into practice what Jesus has taught for three years, to fulfill the very reason for His incarnation. That's what's happening in in these chapters. Charles Spurgeon said this. Now, he said it specifically of the account of the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that we'll find here in chapter 26, but I think it really applies to all three of these remaining chapters. Spurgeon said this. He said, Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. And so, at the risk of sounding melodramatic this morning, but I would say maybe only to ears that have been desensitized to the significance of the work of salvation wrought by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I don't feel qualified this morning to venture onto this holy ground. And I pray for each of us as we hold our Bibles in our hands and we begin to consider the events recorded in these last few pages, that we would do so with soft, tender, and attentive hearts. That we would not simply read and or hear the words on these pages and dismiss them, or even even just give them little attention, but rather allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and in our hearts to bring an appreciation for what is the greatest events in all of history. If you would, just pray with me once more. Father, we look to you in the power of your Spirit, Lord, to do this work. I pray, Lord, there would not be a heart in this place, not a person in this place, not a person watching online, not a person listening later on that does simply that, that we just listen. Rather, Lord, may we receive from you what is the truth of a living word, May we pay attention to, Lord, and be sensitive to the significance of these events, Lord, these events that were the fulfillment of history, these events that changed history, Lord. We would not be here right now if it were not for what we will consider in these pages. Lord, our lives have been changed by these truths, by these events. Lord, help us to understand it if even in some small way. And Lord, to to do that, I know, requires the supernatural. And we ask for that here this morning, Lord. May you move and work here, I pray, to bring understanding and to allow your word to pierce our hearts, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, chapter 26, we will not get through the entirety of the chapter here today. In verse 1, We read, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, again, it is not an overstatement to say that history from before creation has been building to these times, to this time. His public ministry effectively ending, three years of teaching now behind Him, Scripture is about to find much of its fulfillment in the events that will transpire through these remaining chapters. And so when He finished Saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. 
Jesus is not speaking in parable. He very plainly and matter-of-factly declares, I am going to die. And, and not just die, I am going to be tortured and killed. He speaks of crucifixion. In verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. You see the religious leaders, their egos still bruised and battered from their spiritual beatdown in the temple have not come to their senses. Anger has only given way to rage, and they are plotting now how they might silence Jesus once and for all. And make no mistake about it, the religious leaders' actions may seem heinous. But we would be foolish to not consider that still today, when confronted with the truth of our own sin, we often seek to silence Jesus by the quenching of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. And and while we may not be the ones to plot the man's death, we at the very least would likely be, if we're honest, ones who would join in the crowds of the day that shouted, crucify him, crucify him, or maybe like his closest friends who will do so soon, desert him in his darkest hour. Friends, we must always be willing to let the sinfulness of our hearts be exposed, for it's when we do that then we can truly appreciate and depend on His grace. That's what's happening. In these remaining chapters, it's an incredible demonstration of the grace of God. And if we're not honest with ourselves and not willing to search our own hearts, then as I've said before, we minimize His grace and we dismiss our need for it. But... When we depend on Him, when we know His grace, then we can truly worship Him. When we begin to understand what's happening, and that's why it's so important to not simply dismiss it, because when we begin to really grasp what's happening here, what's described in these pages, then we can begin to know His incredible grace. And when we know His grace more and more, then we can truly worship Him. And we can worship Him in, in some respects like what we see take place here in this next event. Look at verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to Him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on His head as He was reclining at the table. You see, at, at first reading, this could sound like more of an offense than anything, almost as if here he's sitting at the table and the waitress comes by and spills something all over him, right? It's a, she just comes and she pours something on his head. It can sound odd to us at first, but this is truly an act of great worship. You see, this is what we know as the anointing at Bethany. Bethany was a town outside of Jerusalem, Now Matthew, as is often the case, does not see fit to tell us who the person is who is performing such an act. He does this throughout his gospel. He doesn't highlight, if you will, the the name of the various people who we might consider heroes. But John tells us, in John chapter 12, verse 3, he tells us who this woman is. It's Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. Now what happens here is that Mary, while the group was seated at the table, in an incredible act of worship, a great demonstration of love and of sacrifice, brings a jar of perfume and begins to pour it on Jesus. She breaks the jar open and begins to pour it over Him. Now, we see a lot in this great act of sacrifice 
that must be considered here this morning. The first of which is that there are some, one in particular, who sees this as such a waste. And that's Judas. We see that in the other Gospels, we're told that it's Judas. In verse 8, Matthew writes, When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price in the money given to the poor. You see, what we must understand is that indeed this perfume likely purchased somewhere, whether uh, further east there towards uh, India, or maybe it was brought from that place. It was very expensive. It was unique. It was, it was believed that this perfume is probably worth the equivalent of a year's wages. A year. Someone's full annual salary to purchase this item. Now, it also is believed that it may have been something that Mary was saving for a dowry of sorts, should she ever be married. And so it is true that this perfume could have been sold and a great deal of money given to various causes. But we know of Judas that his concern was not for the poor, but for the money that he thought he could have lined his own pockets with. Now before we put, of course, all the judgment on Judas and let ourselves off the hook, we must ask ourselves, what of worship and service to our Lord today? There's certainly many examples we could consider, a few of which might be, have you ever seen someone so moved during our time of praise and worship? Maybe hands lifted high or some, some move of emotion, and you think to yourself, oh, they're just putting on a show, how silly. Put your hands down. This isn't the place for that. Or perhaps the person who walks away from a great job or gives up the opportunity for a large sum of money to serve the Lord or in obedience does something very sacrificial that they believe the Lord has called them to do. Do you look at it and say, how foolish, how irresponsible, what a waste. You see, I think oftentimes in our culture today, we are just as guilty of Judas as uh, of looking at great acts of worship and sacrifice and scoffing at it. But you see, Jesus defends Mary. In verse 10, it says, Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I rather like the fact that here at this stage of Jesus' ministry, he's being very forthright both with what's about to happen as well as receiving praise. It goes back even to his triumphal entry, and as the Pharisees tell him to quiet the people, he says, should I do that, even the rocks would cry out. Now, why was this beautiful? Because this was worship. Listen, guys, I think to some degree today we don't have a right understanding of what worship is. Many people in the church, when they hear the idea of worship, they think to themselves, that's the beginning of the, of the church service. It's the part that I try to come in late to, right? That's the buffer before we get to the message. I'm not dogging on anybody who's legitimately late, okay? But if that's your heart, oh, that's the time I can miss, you better pay attention. It's not only that, it's not only that time, but I don't think we really have an understanding of what worship is. Friends, worship is about sacrifice. Worship is about surrender. There are so many aspects of a Christian's walk with the Lord about their whole life that is intended to be worship. And worship, listen to me, worship should cost you something. It should. That's not me advocating for tithe. We just told you this morning we don't pass the plate. It's not about money. 
Though maybe the Lord is calling that to you, maybe there is some sort of sacrifice that he's speaking into your life specifically and saying, do this for me. But it should cost us something because worship, if rightly understood, is, is, is about sacrifice. It's about surrender. And what does surrender mean? We can think of surrender as like, okay, white flag, I'm waving it. But what does that mean for you? What is it that you're surrendering? Likely your plans, your desires, your will. Saying, Lord, not mine, yours. And so you see, when we do that, chances are you're giving up something. You're deciding that your plan is not as good as his. It doesn't mean you're not still attached to it, still desiring it in some way. It's about demonstrating love for Jesus. And that too might cost you something. It might be embarrassing to you. It might, it might bring upon you some form of criticism or even persecution. And so you see of Mary's act here, great was her sacrifice. It was costly for her to show such love for Jesus. Immediately ridicule came as she poured out something that was very expensive. Great was the surrender on the part of Mary because yes, if if in fact this was her dowry, then in some respects she was saying this resource that I have acquired that is perhaps the means for me to a relationship and to a better life, Jesus, you're better. I'll sacrifice it for you. Great was the demonstration of love Yes, she risked embarrassment, but, but you see, she knew who Jesus was. And so she didn't care. And I would ask, how about you? Are you so moved by who your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that you do not care about anything else? You see, Jesus here in verse 11 says, the poor you will, have, you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. You see, Jesus understood what she was doing. And it's quite astonishing that Mary understood what she was doing. You might look at that and say, well, wait, what do you mean? I thought she was just worshiping him here. She's actually preparing his body for burial? How how was she preparing Jesus' body for burial? Most of the people that were with him, his closest friends, didn't even get it. They didn't even understand that he was, in fact, going to die though he had told them. But you see, Mary, she knew. She knew that Jesus was going to die and be buried, but she also knew that he would rise again just as he had resuscitated her brother. And so she saw fit then to prepare his body in advance for this event. Now you might ask yourself, why did Mary know this? Well, think about who Mary was. Think about some of the other stories you know about Mary. Mary loved and worshipped Jesus. She spent time, you remember, at His feet. Regularly sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening and learning. And there's an implication there for us that the the more someone knows Jesus, the more time you spend at the feet of Jesus, the more you will worship Him. Do you understand that? And so if you recognize today that there is a gap in your worship, that you are not so moved to love Him and to sacrifice for Him and to surrender to Him, you need to spend more time with Him. Now certainly, 
as I've already established, worship of Jesus is more than just our time of praise and worship. But don't think that this is not still a good indication of your familiarity and love for Him. I wonder this morning, are you one who is willing to break open the costly jar of perfume and pour it out on Jesus? Whatever that means for you, whatever that sacrifice looks like, Imagine, if you will, in this home, the aroma of her sacrifice filling the air. This was pleasing to Jesus. He said so Himself. Do you find in your worship of the Lord that you are willing to sacrifice and risk all for Him? Does it serve as a sweet aroma? Do you in surrender give it all? Or if you are honest this morning, is there an area in your life that you're holding back? Do you say, well, it's, that's just not reasonable. That's too costly. It's, it's too embarrassing. I just don't like singing. Or Jesus would want me to save this money. Or, you know, this is the responsible thing to do. This is what Jesus would want me to do. Do you find ways to rationalize not giving Him your all? Listen, if that is you, then may I submit to you that differently than Mary, you have yet to come to a place where you really know Him and His grace. And if that is the case, get at His feet. Seek Him. Learn from Him. Listen to Him like Mary did. And worship Him. You see, Jesus says in verse 13, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so you see, prophecy is fulfilled right here this morning. Verse 14, then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. You see, so great were Judas's selfish desires, he could not comprehend such worship of Jesus. For him, it appears it was the last straw. I can't do it. This guy demands this level of worship, this wastefulness. Oh, what this money could do for me. And so the longing of his flesh causes him to depart. And then verse 17, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now you see the last week of Jesus's life was also the week of Passover. It's uh, for uh, most who were coming to Jerusalem, this was the reason Jesus knew other things would occur. And this was the time when each year the Jewish people would celebrate God's miraculous deliverance of them from Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh. And they would do so by eating a meal that was symbolic of their time in Egypt when God delivered them and death passed over those who had the protection of the sacrificed lamb, the blood from the lamb on their doorposts. And so the disciples then looking to Jesus are very sort of practically inquiring, where will this meal take place? They want to get things prepared and set up. And Jesus, in verse 18, replies, go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover and so we come then to the second event we'll consider here this morning, the Passover meal, or as many know it, the Last Supper here in this context. 
In verse 20, it says, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. We've heard now twice in this chapter of reclining at the table. Many of you know, but in case you're wondering, they didn't sit at dining room tables the way that we do today. Uh, They had lower tables, lower to the ground, with some pillows around it, and they would literally recline. Most people being right-handed, they would recline on their left elbow, and they'd be able to eat with their right. And they kind of worked themselves in that way around the table. When you see the infamous painting of the Last Supper, you can rest assured it's wrong. Okay? (laughs) Uh, So many things about it are wrong. (laughs) I I, I don't fault uh, the painter, but uh, uh, it's not an accurate depiction of how this was. And so they're they're kind of laying and eating. I find it to be a very awkward way of eating a meal, but uh, it was a longer meal, okay? And uh, uh, they didn't have to really get into the steak, maybe the way that we do. Um, Nevertheless, here they're, they're reclining, and Jesus says something that has to trouble them all saying, again, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Once again, Jesus now being very forthright says, listen, one of you are going to betray me. Now in verse 22, it says, they were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't don't mean me, Lord. Other translations render it, is it I? Is it me? A, a concern, Lord, could it possibly be me? And I think to the credit of the disciples here, they're thinking, I don't want to be that one. None of them wanted to be guilty of this betrayal. Which of you wants to let your friend down? Now, it's interesting here, and I like this. You know, I'm, I'm a fan of John. John gives us more information. <laughs> Matthew keeps some things back. He's trying to just, it seems he's trying to like protect everybody. John's like, no, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you what's going on here. Because in John's Gospel, we have, we have this detail that tells us essentially this, that John was seated right next to Jesus. Of course, yes, John would be the one to say, yeah, I, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's me, right? So he, he's got, a, he's got a, a, a particular seat right next to Jesus. And then it's funny because it's Peter who's then next to John, who isn't really close, because remember, they're reclining, they're laying out, so it's not like they're boom, boom, boom. And so Peter is next to John then, and you know Peter. I mean, we've gotten to know Peter through the gospel. Where Peter's thinking, who is it? Who is it? Right? So he leans over, it seems, based off of John's gospel, Peter leans over to John and says, ask him who it is. Right? So then John's like, yeah, I'm right next to Jesus. And he leans over to Jesus, who is it? Who's the one who will betray you? And the amazing thing here is, again, Jesus now is like, I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> right? But, but make no mistake about it, Jesus continues to be incredibly gracious toward Judas. Nevertheless, Jesus replied, verse 23, to John, based off of John's gospel, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. You see, Jesus doesn't have to say specifically to John as Judas. He says to him, as they're both dipping likely some of the bread into the oil at this point, he says, his hand's dipping with me right now. So Jesus is telling John, But here's the other implication of this, that the way they're seated, it means that Jesus and Judas are very close to each other through this meal, sharing some of the elements, breaking bread together. Think of the closeness that Jesus allows here with his own betrayer. Tells us much of the character of Jesus. Verse 24, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, 
you have said so. One can only imagine the tension that existed in this moment as Judas realizes he's been made. Yet Jesus does nothing else about it. We'll consider this next week as we look at the Garden of Gethsemane and then uh, the path to the cross. We'll consider truly the obedience of Jesus, the surrender of Jesus, the willingness of Jesus to allow for the plan of salvation to take place. This was certainly a part of it. And in verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. So moving on from this very tense situation, Jesus now brings the focus uh, back to his mission for this evening. And as they're nearing now the end of the meal, during the Passover meal, a portion of the unleavened bread or matzah would have been broken off and saved for the end, uh, almost uh, as a dessert. Uh, but also, oftentimes, I don't know that it was the case necessarily here, but uh, for a bit of a game as well, this piece that was broken off and would be saved for the end of the meal would also be hidden. Okay, They would hide it away. This was oftentimes for the sake of the, of the kids as they tear this bread, and oftentimes the bread that they were using was much larger, and you tear a piece of it off and you save it for the end, you save it for dessert, but they hide it away. You know, I, I like to hide the dessert for my kids too, right? They know this. Uh, now, the bread, of course, is unleavened, uh, as this is what was instructed during the time of the original Passover. You see, the Jewish people would make leavened bread, but as they were getting ready to flee Egypt, God instructed them because there wasn't going to be any time for the bread to rise, and so they were instructed to, uh, to have it without leaven and to be, to be ready to go, as it were. Uh, and, and so they celebrate still today with unleavened bread, bread that even as we took uh, communion recently with the matzah, bread that bears similarities to our crucified Lord, it, having stripes upon it, bruises from the fire, piercings, brokenness. Uh, it's a wonderful thing the way in which this bread symbolizes the body of our crucified Lord. And so here, Jesus, at the end of the meal, he takes the bread, the bread that was, had been broken off, the larger portion of it, and he, he breaks it once again. And Now, if, if in fact this is the bread that was saved for the end, then the, the Hebrew term for this is the afikomen, which means this, that it's that which comes after, or the dessert and the implication, of course, then, as Jesus is saying that this bread symbolizes himself, his own body, is that Jesus is, is not only uh, symbolized here in the markings and the brokenness of the bread, but also in that he is, in fact, the treasure at the end. Jesus, if you will, is the dessert, the sweet thing that we are looking forward to, that we are eager for and waiting in anticipation for. In verse 27, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, at a Passover meal, there are also four cups of wine that are symbolic and consumed throughout the meal. In Exodus, in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, God tells Moses, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 
I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The four cups then that are taken throughout the meal are first the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out. The second is the cup of deliverance. As the Lord declares, I will rescue you. The third, the cup of redemption. I will redeem you. And the fourth and final, the cup of praise. I will take you as my people. Jesus here likely at this point taking the third cup after supper. The cup of redemption. Says this is my blood of a new covenant. In Exodus 12, as the Passover is instituted, the people sacrificed the lamb in the doorway of the house. You see, it's interesting, each of them would have taken a lamb in there in the doorway of their house where there would have been a threshold and a bit of a trench in front of it. They would sacrifice the lamb right there in the middle of their doorway. The blood would run down into the trench before the threshold. At this particular time, it's believed that often these houses were built in such a way where the, the door frame... Uh, the posts and the lintel construction would almost appear as two crosses, the center beam of the cross connecting between the two. And so what you have at the Passover sacrifice there the very first time in Egypt is a sacrificed lamb whose blood is spilt between two crosses. As the blood is then taken, it's spread across the posts, and the lamb is then brought indoors, the door shut, and they are to remain in there throughout the rest of the evening feasting on the lamb knowing that its blood was shed for them, that they are covered, that the angel of death would pass over them. They'd been redeemed. Jesus, whom John the Baptist declared, was the Lamb of God. John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus here is saying, This is my blood poured out for you. For the first time in history now, here after years upon years upon years upon years of celebrating this event, Jesus here now in this dinner, this meal that He said to His disciples, I have longed for this moment, declares to them, I'm the Passover Lamb. I'm the one. The one who now takes away the sin of the whole world. And He says, this is now a new covenant you see, in Exodus, in chapter 24, verse 8, when God gave Moses the law, Moses took the blood of the sacrifice in that moment and he sprinkled the blood on the people, saying that we've received the law and we are now in a covenant relationship with God, but it was based on the law. And now Jesus says, now this is a, a new covenant. My body, my blood that now covers you in a new relationship, not rooted in works, not rooted in the law, but rooted in me, in my works, in what I have accomplished. It's no more about animal sacrifice. It's about grace. As Jesus says, I am the sacrifice. You're now in relationship with me. Jesus says, my blood is a better blood that covers all. Amen? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Praise God. This is why Jesus was longing for this moment. Why He had looked forward to this meal. You see, it was beginning. 
Here it was beginning the work that he had come to accomplish. Jesus had longed to give this gift. What gift was that? The great gift of his redeeming grace. And Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He says, I won't drink this again until we are together having a party. The marriage supper of the Lamb that I believe we will all be at, Christian. That when Scripture tells us that as we take communion, as we take of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim His death until He comes, that's exactly right. That we say we're doing this in remembrance of You, Lord Jesus, and what it is that You've done. And every time that we do this, we declare You're coming again. And there will come a time when You will drink of the cup again and we will be with You. And I can't understand it all. I can't grasp it. My little brain has such difficulty with comprehending being in heaven and glory with Him and celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. I can't figure it out. I don't understand it. And I know for sure that I certainly don't deserve it. But that's His grace. And it's only natural then that in verse 30 it says, when they had sung a hymn, I can only imagine the moment, this meal, for Jesus to be explaining these things, that it's only fitting that it gave way to praise that it gave way to singing. And they went from there out to the Mount of Olives. Now for the disciples, though their understanding had increased, they were still unclear on what was about to happen. And in verse 31, then Jesus told them this very night. Listen, I want you to understand something. As they were beginning, and we'll consider this more next week, we'll begin to close here. As they came out from the house where they were celebrating the Passover meal, and as they sang their hymn and they began to make their way out to the Mount of Olives, they'd be heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's still there today, albeit it likely looks different. It's an incredible place. They would have to go down from the city of Jerusalem down into the Kidron Valley. They would have to cross the brook Kidron. It happened to be that this was the place where as temple sacrifices were being made, that the blood would run out. So many sacrifices, the blood would run out from the temple down into the valley and down through the brook Kidron. As they crossed over this place, no doubt, Jesus had to have taken notice of the blood that was running. The fact that it was going to be once and for all His sacrifice and His blood that would be shed. But He knew what awaited them still. As he said, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, God bless him. Verse 33, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Verse 34, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. I can only imagine Peter at this moment, thinking Judas was the one. He told us at dinner, I'm not going to betray him. No way, I'm not going to do that. Those of you that have watched The Chosen, picture Peter in your mind, don't you? That's, <laughs> it's one of the blessings and the curses of a show like that, right? Is now we have this image in our mind, but I think he plays the character quite well. If you haven't seen The Chosen, it's back for season two on Resurrection Sunday. So catch up for the first season. Yes, that's an official endorsement, okay? Uh, <laughs> I think the show's fantastic. I really do. I've never seen a portrayal of Jesus like that. I just, and again, we don't fully know, but man, when you watch The Chosen, you think that's a Jesus that, that I think people would want to follow, right? Um, so watch it. It's, I think it's pretty great. 
So Jesus here, he says, no, you're going to deny me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And of course, all the other disciples, they join in. And what they don't know is they're going to die. Not in the way that they thought. The events of the evening will certainly not go the way that they may be anticipating. But Jesus in this moment is beginning. Scripture we see throughout this portion and will continue throughout the next several chapters. Scripture has been fulfilled. It's being fulfilled. Jesus knows what awaits him. And if anybody thinks that at this point he's just as cool as the other side of the pillow, Jesus is going to go into the garden and he's going to break down. And maybe not for the reasons that we might think. And we're going to close there today. I wish we had more time. I think of the disciples here. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close this out in song. You know, the, the disciples, this is what they intended. They didn't want to disown Jesus. But they didn't, they didn't fully understand what was coming. And More importantly, they did not yet understand His grace. They did not fully understand His grace. They didn't understand their need for it. Peter and the others still operating off of an I-can-do-it mentality. Never, Lord. I won't let you down. I'm strong enough. But you see, friends, when, 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 we, when we still distant from Jesus, not truly grasping the significance of who He is and of what He has done, still caught up in what we can do, we diminish His grace and our own need for it. Had they understood it? Had they understood it? When, when we understand it, then we find ourselves in a place where we say, you're right, Lord. I'm going to let you down. Lord, I can't do it. I'm not capable. Friends, I, I can say for me, and this is, I, I hope this doesn't sound like it's coming from a place of pride because it's a place that honestly truly hurts as I am increasingly aware of what I cannot do. But he is so good that in the midst of that, he says, I'm faithful. I'll do it. Just trust me. And when, I, when we get to that place, the more I get to that place, the more I can say that my desire is for Him and Him alone. The more I can say, that, Lord, You're worthy of my praise, You and You alone. That, Lord, You're worthy of my life. It's not my own. Lord, it's Yours. Lord, You're worthy of my resources. They're not my own. They're Yours. Lord, I worship you. Truly worship. Lord, you are my afikomen, the thing which comes after, the greatest desire, the sacrifice that covers me. When we understand rightly who we are and who he is, then we understand and appreciate our need for grace. And also that while he gives it freely, that it was not without a cost. We'll consider that more next week as the concept can certainly be difficult to grasp. I pray and I ask that each of you would, that maybe even, listen, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, that's uh, it's one of those things you could say, well, we celebrate it every day, right? There's nothing special about the one that's going to be here in three weeks. But I just wonder if maybe in our prayers, we could say, Lord, in your kindness, would you do something special these next few weeks? Because we need it, Lord. Because you are that good and gracious toward us. Would you do a work in our hearts? Would you do something new, Lord, and bring us to a deeper place in our love for you and our walk with you? Let's pray. Father, we pause here this morning, and once again, Lord, we give you praise for who you are. We give you thanks, Lord, for our time together. And Lord, hopefully we see, Lord, each and every one of us, Lord, just how much, how rich, Lord, your word is. 
we could sit here for days, Lord, and meditate upon and, and feast on the Scriptures. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do that, albeit maybe not together each and every day, Lord. Lord, may we just pursue You with greater desire here these next several days, Lord. Between now and Resurrection Sunday, Lord, I would ask, Lord, in Your kindness towards us, would You do something special? Would You change our hearts and change our minds, Lord? Not for a one-time emotional experience, but that, Lord, we would, we would move to a new place, Lord. And we would go deeper in our walk with you. Not to, ret- not to go back, Lord. Call us deeper. Press upon us, Lord. Have your way in us and through us. May, may we, Lord, truly understand in the days and weeks ahead what it means to worship, Lord. What it means that you have covered us. What it means to be under a new covenant. Lord, do that work in our lives. Give us understanding, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.